Ah, it's so good to see you here today. Good to see you online as well. Something that I probably, I haven't told you the last 16 months. And for those of you online listening at home as well, and those that you, of you just returning, you've been watching online, it's just kind of a well-kept secret that if you're at home watching us, uh, we can see you too. So, you know, I don't know what you've been doing and that one or two of you that just show up in your pajamas, we, we know that. We're, we're aware of that. Wouldn't that be creepy? And on a Sunday that I'm talking about truth, isn't that, uh, that ironic? Uh, remember as we phase things back in, th- a little bit at a time, we're work- looking at things I've been saying all along, uh, there will be some things we adjust before they return, ministries that are adjusted. There will be some things that come back just like they've been before, such as in-person worship. There will be some things that won't come back. Ministries that we learned and during the pandemic have uh, uh, need, need to be set aside for greater ministries, for moving forward with other things. So a little at a time as we move forward, you'll learn more about uh, those things as well. And new ministries that we'll get involved in, brand new things that we'll be doing in the days ahead. Uh, before I move forward, I want to ask you this. I got a surprise for you at the end of the hour, so don't go away. Don't jump up and leave. Don't turn off or log off online till we have that last closing prayer. I want to have a surprise for you. Don't want you to miss out on this. We return this morning to our series, Father of Lies. We're looking at the contrast between the truth of God and the lies of Satan, making sure we tune, tune into God's truth. Revealed in His Word, God's absolute, universal, transcendent, eternal truth, and how that contrasts with the lies of Satan. We learned at the beginning of the series, Satan is the father of lies. John chapter 8, he is the father of lies. There's no truth in him. He can only lie to you. Uh, So this morning we're going to turn toward one of the best-known conversations in the Bible and best-known moments in the Bible in which, Jesus, in which uh, Satan applies his lies toward temptation, in this case, toward tempting Jesus Christ. It's important that we, we pay attention to the handiwork of Satan, that we pay attention to the way he tempts us and the way he lies to us to draw us toward sin. And this story gives us a great illustration of that. If you have your Bible, find that story with me in your New Testament, Matthew Chapter 4, the Gospel of Matthew, and chapter 4. Turn there and hold your place for just a moment. Allison Witt and her husband got married with all the excitement that marriage brings and took their dream honeymoon, a vacation to Barbados. She was so excited about going with her new husband to Barbados, and they had a wonderful trip. Beautiful beaches, uh, pristine weather, great local menus, just had the time of their lives in Barbados. Then when they returned, her husband started getting sick. And as they looked more closely, they found that he had infections in both feet. He went to the doctor. He even had open sores on his feet that were getting worse and worse. Went to the doctor and found out that he had hookworms. As it turns out, while he was in Barbados wearing flip-flops, he got sores on his feet. 
And while he was on the beach, the hookworms took advantage of those sores because it turns out, and I'm not going to give you the, the really gory details, but if you're interested, go home and Google hookworms and see how they happen. But the short of it is there are a lot of feral cats in Barbados, and they use the beaches as their sandboxes. The moral of that story is sometimes the things we want the most result in the things we want the least. Sometimes the things we desire the most have an outcome that turns out to be far from what we wanted at all. Usually on the front end, temptation is appealing and Satan wants it to be appealing. It's the outcome that's so dangerous. And it's a reminder of the lesson that just because we want to do something doesn't mean that we should do it. Doesn't mean we should do it just because we want to do it. We're going to read this well-known story, this passage in Scripture, uh, and I would, I would offer, by the way, the reason that Matthew knew this story to record it is because Jesus told it to them. Uh, he was the only one there. I'll see, we'll see. He was there with Satan and the Father God, the Holy Spirit's at work. The angels come later. But the story comes from Jesus to remind us of how Satan works, how Satan lies, and how to combat those lies, those lies with God's truth. Now, the overarching lie of Satan that we're looking at this morning is one that, that targets believers, targets Christians, and churchgoers. And remember, there's a difference between those two things. Just because you're a churchgoer doesn't mean you're a follower of Christ. But Satan uses this particular lie to target those of us who are in the kingdom of God or believe that we are. And the lie is very simple. God should do what I want God to do. God should do what I want God to do. If, if I am a good person, if I'm a churchgoer, if I'm a follower of Christ, if I serve God in good ways and I do good things and I'm not a bad person, then God should do what I want God to do. Don't I deserve it? Doesn't my faith mean that God will do what, what I want God to do? And one of Satan's lies is, yes, God should do what you want God to do. To shorten it, another way to put it, God works for you. God works for you. And if God works for you, God is obligated to do whatever, God, whatever you want God to do. Look there with me in Matthew chapter 4. The Bible says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is written, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. This story takes place, this event takes place right after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan 
And as we read it, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit himself led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, in the theological grand scheme of the Bible, the purpose behind that was because, as the Bible tells us later, Jesus was tempted every way that we were tempted and yet did not sin. So God is in charge. The Holy Spirit of God, under the orchestration of the Heavenly Father, takes the Son of God in human flesh into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So that when Jesus goes to the cross, he will have stood against Satan in every way and stood against sin in every way on our behalf. Now also in the grand scheme of the Bible, this event in the history of Jesus and the life of Christ restores to other events in which humanity failed miserably. The first one we saw two weeks ago, which Eve sinned by a misapplication and a twisting of the truth of God. The Satan got to Eve, Eve fell to temptation, sin and death entered into humanity. And we're going to see that Jesus' responses to Satan directly counter what Eve did, mostly that he stands on the Word of God. He is faithful to the truth of God. And we're to learn from Jesus and what he did. But the second reason in the big picture is the people of God failed God in the wilderness. When they exited Egypt, the exodus, they sinned against God in the wilderness. Now Jesus succeeds on behalf of God and humanity again in the wilderness. As we go into the story, I want to point out a couple of other things uh, that are important to the way the story uh, uh, opens up and our understanding of what God wants us to learn from this story about Satan's lies and how we can stand against that and, and the truth of God and what we are supposed to learn. The first thing is that Satan is referred to as the tempter before he's referred to as the devil. Now, the word devil, the name devil and the name Satan uh, translate Hebrew and Greek respectively and mean adversary or accuser. But here Matthew refers to him specifically as the tempter. That is to say his primary role in this situation is to tempt Jesus. When In our culture, in our day and time, even Christians buy into the notion that the primary issue with Satan and what we're to be most concerned about with Satan is what he does, the scary things that he does, especially possession. And we see that in movies all the time. And, of course, movies and the Internet, they're always right. And, and we see it in Stephen King books all the time. And, and we see it in any illustration of evil that Satan's objective is to possess people, uh, to, to show evil, to, uh, to twist people into grotesque ways. But what's interesting is you, you rarely see that in the Bible. Now, sure, he does possess people. We see that in the Gadarene demoniac. We see it in the man in, in Mark chapter 1. There's a man sitting in the synagogue who's possessed by a demon. We do see that. And let me add, by the way, incidentally, Christians born again in Christ cannot be possessed by Satan because you're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. So set that concern aside. That doesn't mean Satan can't manipulate you. doesn't mean he can't oppress you. doesn't mean he can't depress you. And it certainly doesn't mean he won't lie to you. But he cannot possess you because you're already owned by God if you're in Christ. Moving on then, what does the Bible show as Satan's primary tool, his primary weapon? Lying. 
You see, he wants to lie to us through the culture and make us think, well, we just, those scary things, that's Satan. That's what we need to be concerned about all the time. No, what you need to listen to and be concerned about is that he is a tempter. He is a liar. He is an accuser. His primary weapon are words. Twisting the truth of God, twisting uh, and manipulating what you think about yourself, about your family, about your life. He's a liar. That's his main weapon. And through his lies, Jesus says, he, he brings about murder. He brings about deceit. He brings about addiction. He brings about people falling into temptation. He is the father of lies. And we're told in this story, that's the tool, that's the weapon he brings into the wilderness to fight Jesus. The second thing I want you to, to notice, by the way, Matthew says, after Jesus had been fasting and in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. So he's been there that long. But the Gospel of Luke tells us Satan's been there more often than this event. And uh, he's been consistently trying to tempt Jesus and to wear him down. But what we see here is that last effort. It's not the last time he'll show up. There are two more times in the Bible in which Satan shows up with the same temptations. And especially the one that he ends with in the desert, he picks up later. But the most important thing to see here is how Jesus responds. Before we even get into combating this lie of Satan, I want you to pay attention to how Jesus responds and contrast that with how Eve responds. You remember how Eve responded to Satan, to the tempter, to the liar? She she agreed with him when he twisted God's scripture and she entered into a conversation with him she should not have had. But what we see Jesus doing is explicitly quoting the word of God. All these quotations are from the book of Deuteronomy, by the way, which God gave to the people of God in the wilderness. How about that? Jesus knows the word of God so well, he quotes it directly to combat Satan's lies. He does not deviate from it. He does not add to it. He simply reminds Satan of the word of God, which you see Satan already knows. Yeah, Satan knows the truth. Satan knows the word of God. He knows it well enough to quote it. And let it rest on you, believer in Christ, for a moment this question, should Satan know the Word of God better than you? And if he does, how easy it is for him to lie to you about the very thing you should know better than him, the truth of God. Jesus combats Satan by quoting the Scripture. Listen to how he does it, though. We, we gloss over this so quickly we have to see it in context. It is written. Three times he says, it is written. Meaning, in God's eternal, absolute, universal truth, there is this unchanging pronouncement of God that will not change. And no tweaking Satan does, no lie of Satan, no subjective truth of a human being. Never, never when you say, my preference, my opinion, never do you override this absolute, eternal, unchanging, universal truth of God. You can rest in it. You can learn it. You can apply it. You can use it. It will not change. It's trustworthy and reliable. And as we saw last time, it's eternal because it's God's truth. Remember, Satan wants you to think that your truth is truth. Your feelings are truth. Your opinions, your preferences, that's the truth. 
No. That's what Satan wants you to think. God's word is truth. Because God is truth. Let's go back to the story for just a moment. There's this one overarching lie of Satan. God should do what I want God to do. And at one time or another, sometimes frequently, churchgoers and believers fall into this. They listen to this lie. God should do what I want God to do. And Satan takes that one big lie and he approaches Jesus with three little lies that reflect how we, how we behave and three little lies that, that Satan applies to that one big lie and says, see, God should do what you want God to do. Look at this with me. First of all, God should do what you want God to do because you want it. God should do what I want God to do because I want it. Because I want it. The first temptation of Satan directly attacks Jesus' hunger, his appetite. Or, as the Bible talks about it, the flesh, the, the earthly needs. Because he's a man. He's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. So that's the first thing Satan goes to. Turn these rocks into bread. Since uh, the phrase, if you are the Son of God, by the way, is a Greek construction that literally means since you are. Satan's not doubting Jesus is the Son of God. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. He's actually affirming it. Since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. God, would not, God the Father doesn't want you to be hungry, and, and you certainly don't want to be hungry. So turn these stones into bread. Feed your appetite. You deserve it. You should feel better. Right? It's the age-old temptation to put our human earthly appetites first. It is it's saying what I want, I want because I want it. And, and, and I deserve it. I'm a Christian. I'm a churchgoer. I deserve a rock star spouse, the biggest house. I deserve more money. I deserve the better job. I certainly don't deserve to suffer if I'm a Christian, right? I deserve obedient kids. Wouldn't that be great? I deserve to live where I want to live, do what I want to do, have what I want to have, and I deserve to have it now. I've been good, God. I've been faithful to you. I've gone to church at least three times during the pandemic. I deserve what I want. In other words, feed my appetite. It's the old sinner self saying, give me what I want. Feed my appetite. Satisfy my addiction. Satisfy my temptation. Do this for me, God, and do it now. What Satan wants to do is reduce your humanity to your earthly appetites. Have you ever thought about that? Let me say that again. What Satan wants to do is reduce your humanity to your earthly appetites. That's why he's constantly telling you, hey, you, you deserve that. You need more stuff. You got to do this. You got to have that. You got to have that. You got to have stuff. And those earthly appetites, as the Bible refers to it, is our flesh, our old sinner self, is crying out to be satisfied. And Satan says, it should be. It should be satisfied. Now look at Jesus' response. Man does not live, humanity does not live on bread alone, by, by, but by every word that issues from, that comes from the mouth of God. Every word of God 
is necessary for life. Satan wants to reduce you to your appetites, to make you focus on your sinful humanity. God wants to raise you up into a relationship with him. And knowing and applying his word is the core to that relationship. God wants you to be the person he wants you to be. Not to be reduced or diminished, but to be the person that he made you to be, created in the image of God, living by the word of God, and trusting the truth of God. Jesus associates that relationship with the truth of God. Because God is the one that defines who you are and who humanity really is. The big lie, God should do what I want God to do falls into this trap, because I want it. But God says there's more to you than that. And there's more to living in Christ than just getting what you want. Satan, having failed in the first temptation, goes to the second one under the umbrella uh, lie of God should give me what I want, God should give you what I want, not only because I want it, but the way that I want it. God should give me what I want the way that I want it. He takes Jesus, as as we read it, to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, The term literally means to the wing or the highest point, which most likely was the corner of the temple overlooking an area called the Kidron Valley on one side and Jerusalem on the other. Because it was one of the few places that if a human being fell or jumped, they would die. When they hit, there was no question about it. There was no rescue there. If a person jumped off that wing of the temple, they would die. Satan takes Jesus up there. And then he quotes the Old Testament. And he quotes a passage of the Old Testament meant for the Messiah, written for the Christ of God, Jesus himself. Uh, And it's prophetic. It foretells the fact that God would protect his Christ, his Messiah. And he applies it to Jesus. He says, isn't this true? Didn't God the Father say this? That he's not going to let any harm come to you? That if you jump off the wing of the temple, he's going to rush in with his angels and they're going to catch you before you hit the ground. Isn't that what God says? And Jesus' response is, it is also written, you will not test, you must not test the Lord your God. See, this temptation is not about performing or showing off. This temptation is about presuming on God what you want God to do and calling it faith. Now, again, notice Satan knows the Word of God. He quotes the Word of God. He even applies the Word of God correctly to Jesus. And notice Jesus does not contest Satan's application of God's Word. Instead, Jesus, knowing God's truth so well, says that truth, that scripture, is subservient to the bigger principle that you do not test the Lord your God. That's an absolute. You do not test the Lord your God. You do not presume upon God to do things the way you want God to do them. That's not faith. That's presumption. That's ordering God around. That's saying, God, you work for me. And I want you to do what you said you would do the way I want you to do it.
God provides for us. God cares for us. God fulfills his promises in Scripture. And when we submit to God in Jesus Christ, we find out God's plan and what God is doing. But God does it his way. Faith is saying, God, do it your way. Faith is not saying, God, do it my way. Faith is saying, God, you do it your way. There's an interesting phenomenon that opened up during the pandemic. I saw it a lot on Facebook and heard it from folks personally among Christians. Now, what I'm about to say, if you said what I'm about to say, I'm not targeting you, I'm not picking on you or anything like that, but pay attention to this. Christians would say, well, I should not have to wear a mask because God will take care of me. I won't get COVID if I I don't wear a mask because God will take care of me. Because it's true, God says he will take care of you. What's interesting is the very same Christians do not go out and get in the car and not wear a seatbelt. They don't get in the car and drive 55 miles an hour down the highway with no seatbelt on and say, God will take care of me. The truth was that particular statement had more to do with politics than it did with faith. But we put it in a faith picture. We kind of spiritualized it because that's what we wanted to say. And it may very well be that you didn't wear a mask through all of the COVID crisis, never uh, never contracted COVID, good for you. It may be you can drive on the highway 55 miles an hour for 10 years without a seatbelt on and never have a head-on collision, good for you. But it only takes one time. And if God's given you the seatbelt and God's provided the mask, is it not more of an act of faith to say God provided for me? Let me give you a little personal example. Uh, This time of year, we start mowing the grass. I like to push mow my yard. Uh, I need the exercise, and the grass likes it. So I I like to push mow my yard. I own a riding mower, but what I do is I go out in my shed, and I back out that riding mower, and and it occurs to me, even as I'm telling this story, I have new neighbors, and, and they see me doing this, backing this mower out, then pulling out, back out the riding mower, then get the push mower out, put gas in it, start pushing my yard. I wonder if they're over there thinking, I wonder if he knows what that other one's for. A few weeks ago, uh, I started mowing the grass. It was hot. I was wearing shorts and mowing my grass and pushing along and praying some as I often do. And a projectile got caught in the blades of the mower. It, I don't know what it was, but I'll tell you this. It felt like a rock when it hit my shin. And I have the broods and the gash to agree with that that was probably a rock. Now, what I could have said was, God, why did you not protect me? I'm a good Christian. I'm even a pastor. Why did you not protect me and prevent that rock from hitting my leg? And God would have responded, why didn't you wear long pants? I provided you long pants. Use your good sense. Because your faith in me is first and foremost, I will provide on you not to presume what I will do for you. Satan's lie is you get to tell God how God should take care of you and what God should do. The big picture lie, God should do what I want God to do the way I want God to do it. Be careful. Faith is trusting God's word, applying that to your life, and letting God bring the results the way he desires. Letting God, trusting God to be God in your life. Third, third lie. 
God should do what I want God to do, not only because I want it and the way that I want, but when I want God to do it. Now we really recognize this as something that Christians frequently buy into. God, why are you taking so long? God, hurry up. God, you need to do what I want you to do, the way I want you to do it, and when I want you to do it. Satan's final temptation here, and the one that comes up again later in Jesus' life, bow down and worship me, and I will make all the kingdoms yours. And Jesus responds this time with nearly anger in the original language. Get away from me, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. The Word of God says, it is written, worship God alone. Now watch this. You need to underscore this, underline, and serve Him only. See, what Jesus is pointing out is serving God only is worshiping God. Serving God only is worshiping God. Submitting to God is worshiping God. See, the temptation here is actually short-circuiting God's plan. It's taking a shortcut to the end. It's skipping over the cross and skipping over the resurrection. The Bible says that one day all humanity will bow their knee to Jesus Christ and worship Him and proclaim His name. Satan says, let's just skip over the cross Just get there by bowing to me first. It's a temptation to renounce God's plan. The single most fundamental submission of every believer is a submission to God's plan, to God's purpose in your life. Graduates in particular need to learn this early on because you will have the temptation over and over and over again to shortcut God's plan. To renounce what God wants in your life. To skip to the end as rapidly as you can and get what you want as quickly as you can. Especially if there's any struggle or strife involved along the way. But you know, God says there are certain things you will only learn through struggle and strife. You will only learn perseverance. You will only learn endurance. You will only learn diligence through struggle and through strife. God doesn't want you to go through harmful times, but God wants you to depend on Him through those difficult times and know that he has a plan and a purpose for you. And if you try to get to the good stuff too quickly, your character won't grow, your relationship with him won't be right and won't grow. And you're saying to God, I want you to do what I want you to do and I want you to do it when I want you to do it. And if you don't, I'll do it my way. I'll get to the end as fast as I can. I'll get to the good stuff as quick as I can. I'll take any job that comes along I'll do anything I want to, any relationship that comes along. I'll get to the end as quick as I can. Because God, your job is to do what I want you to do. And if you don't, I'll just skip it and do what I want to do. These are temptations of pride and ambition. These are temptations that believers face all the time that we have to be so careful about. They are temptations that undercut our growing in relationship with Christ, our growing in relationship with God, and getting to know Him better and better. When we submit to Him, we worship Him through submission, through serving Him, through saying, you are God and I am not. I do things your way. You don't do things my way. When we do that, we get to see God work out His plan in our lives in wonderful ways. Notice what happens at the end of the story. Satan departs. He has failed in the wilderness this time. 
Satan departs. And God fulfills his promise. And the angels of God come. And they serve Jesus. They minister to him. They serve him. The language is intentional. It's a reminder to every reader that Jesus is God in human flesh. And even the angels submit to him and serve him. And he's won a victory for you and for me. And he's reminded us that God is always faithful and his word, his truth, is always reliable. We can count on God. We can always count on God and his truth and his word. Mark Grennan is a a native of Florida. And during the pandemic, Mr. Grennan and his three sons started a business uh, called MMS, a a solution, Mineral Miracle Solution, MMS, that, that was supposed to cure COVID. In fact, they said not only would it cure COVID, it would cure malaria and some types of cancer. And people bought it in droves. They made over a million dollars. They cleared over a million dollars during the pandemic. And then someone actually tested MMS, this mineral, this miracle solution, turned out to be bleach. And people that were drinking it were getting deathly ill from drinking bleach. Sometimes the thing we think is the best thing for us can have the worst results. And when we short-circuit God's word and his truth, when we listen to the lies of Satan, even if they sound comfortable and sometimes even sound biblical, because we don't know the truth well enough, we don't know God's word well enough to come back to God and say, this is the truth, and I submit to you, and I serve you, and God, you decide the outcome, not me. God, you don't work for me. I serve you, not the other way around. This morning, I'm going to pray for us because as believers in Christ, you may have recognized these temptations of ambition and pride, these temptations uh, of, of, of wanting God to do what you want God to do, to have filtered into your life. And if God shows you that, confess that to him this morning and let him cleanse that, clear that out of your life. And, and we want to get back on board with God's truth, who God is in our life and what God wants in our lives. And maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. To, this morning I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. I'll pray a simple prayer in just a moment. In-house or online, if you've never trusted Christ, I want to encourage you to do that today. Put all your faith and trust in Christ because his word promises when you do that, he will forgive you of your sins, cleanse you, and give you a brand new life in Christ. Heavenly Father, God, as we gather in this place and at home today, Father, we bring to you all of our cares and our burdens. God, we bring to you our confession, Father, that we have, at times, we've listened to that lie, God, that You should do what we want you to do. Father, forgive us for that. And Father, if you've shown any of us, God, sin in our lives, any place that we've given into that temptation, God, please forgive us, cleanse us, and then God, give us hope and move us forward. Father, we embrace your plan, your purposes for our lives. And God, I ask again for all of us, God, you would cleanse us of that sin. For believers, we would rededicate our lives in Christ. And Father, for those who... Our churchgoers maybe have never trusted Christ. Those who know they've never trusted Christ, show us that today, Father. And I pray that those who would trust Christ as their Savior would pray this simple prayer of faith with me 
in their hearts today. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know, God, that I've lived by my appetites, my preferences, my desires. But God, I know what the truth is now. And I know that I can't save myself. God, I believe your truth, that Jesus Christ never sinned, died on the cross for me, and that he's alive today. So Jesus, come into my heart, into my life, forgive me of my sins, cleanse me of sin and unrighteousness, and I repent of that sin and put all my faith and trust in Jesus Christ today. Forgive me of my sins and give me a home in heaven. I commit my life to Christ today. And Father, for those who prayed that prayer and believers who prayed with me earlier, Father, all of us turn our attention to you today, God. We praise you, we worship you, and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.